Welcome to the Ralston College podcast. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Today's guest is the professor of computer science and best-selling author, Cal Newport. I first learned of Newport when I came across his book, Deep Work, which makes a call for focused work in a distracted world. Next, I read Digital Minimalism, a timely book if ever there was one, about how to live an intentional life amidst the fire hose of today's digital distractions. Both of these books have been enormously helpful to me personally in navigating the challenges of the information age we're living in. Because Newport is not simply a time management master. Rather, the techniques and habits and strategies he outlines are all in service of something greater, and that is living truly and well, living what Newport calls the deep life. It may seem surprising that one of the contemporary voices of the contemplative tradition is a professor of computer science, but that is indeed what Newport is, a voice of that tradition, a guide to the habits and practices on which the deep life depends. At the heart of Newport's work is therefore one of the great perennial questions of human life and of all philosophy, and that is how we arrive at true self-possession in a world of time and change. I hope you enjoy the interview. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Thanks for listening. I am super excited today to, to have my friend Cal Newport with us on the Ralston College podcast. Cal is a professor of computer science at Georgetown University. He's also the author of a widely followed blog called Study Hacks, many articles and several books, including Deep Work and most recently, Digital Minimalism. Thanks so much, Cal, for joining me today. Yeah, my pleasure, Stephen. I just want to get right down into the core of, of your work, which is really about living the deep life. Let's start with digital minimalism, which is, I think deals with one of the most urgent issues that human beings are facing today. Tell us about digital minimalism, sorry, digital minimalism. Give a sense of the argument of the book and why you thought it was necessary. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you one thing I learned about it was that minimalism is a word that's easy to write. And now me having to have it say it on air for about two years, I realized that, okay, maybe I could have chosen <laughs> it's so much harder to say. Uh, More minimalist word, maybe. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so the, the premise of the book was to answer two questions, which was why are people getting uneasy about their phones in a way they weren't before and what they should do about it? So that, that was the charge I was essentially given as I as I head at, headed out to, to research that book. And the the answer, so here's the TLDR, the answer to those two questions, the answer to the why are people uneasy about their phones, I found, at least in my research, had less to do with what they were looking at, which is the main narrative you hear. The main narrative you hear is that uh, what's wrong with social media or phones or this or that is the actual things that are happening on the phone. It's the content you're seeing. It's the uh, it's the, the the maybe the misinformation you're seeing. Maybe it's what's happening to you in terms of your data being taken. But what I really found when I looked into it is that people weren't upset about what they were doing on the phone so much as how much time they were spending and what it was taking them away from. 
So there's this sense of I am being uh, taken away from things that are more important to me. The quality of my life is being impoverished, and yet I don't really remember signing up for this. That, that sense of maybe being pushed into a relationship with this device that they didn't intend to was really a theme that came through a lot of the work I did. This notion of I signed up for Facebook in 2009 because I wanted to see what my cousin was up to. And in 2019, I'm looking at it 75 times a day. You know, something shifted. That's not what I signed up for. And then the answer to the question of what should we do, that was this philosophy of digital minimalism. So the eponymous sort of philosophy that this book is, is based on is this notion of digital minimalism, which is a, a very old idea applied to a very new topic. Uh, and, and to summarize it, it's essentially start with figuring out what you care about, what the values are, work backwards to deploy technology to support those things. And this will give you a very healthy relationship with technology, a very beneficial relationship with technology. If you do it the other way around, just start using technology because it could be useful. It could give you some value just to experiment, just to explore. We end up completely enmeshed in a trap of, of uh, addiction and distraction that ends up seriously diminishing the quality of our lives. Mm. Yeah, I you know, the iPhone in a certain sense was, in a certain sense, I was made for an iPhone. In another sense, it's just been a complete disaster for me. I grew up in a big family. You know, I'm the oldest of 10 children. And so I just love connectivity. I love human contact. I love being in touch with others. I love that, 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 that sense of living in relation to other people's lives as they're unfolding. And so when I got the iPhone, I was so excited initially. I just thought this is this is transformative technology and I could always be, you know, be connected and it has all these, you know, of course, cool bells and whistles. Um, and it's true in one sense, you know, it is an amazing technology from the point of view of, of uh, being able to get through a lot of emails quickly or all at once or whatever. And so I don't mean to say there's no, there's no good in the technology, but it's just, in another sense, a complete disaster for me because it exploited that very instinct that I, I think a deep human instinct that we all have to be connected with others. And yet the constant inflow of information and sort of pseudo connectivity had the result of me not being, not being, not feeling connected in the way that I wanted to be in a kind of deeper human way at all. And so I wonder if you could say a bit more about how that turn where you, know, you, you, you end up coming up empty in the very way you thought you'd come up full with these technologies. Well, this was one of the, the interesting threads I ended up pulling when I was looking into this research is trying to understand what do you actually get out of a primarily linguistic digital mediated interaction? So if you're interacting with someone where it's mainly via text, uh, you sent me a text message, it's a post on a social media profile, there's an emoji maybe going back and forth. And one of the big things that becomes clear when you dive into the research on neural social networks is that linguistic communication is only one very small part of the incoming input channels that are involved with human-to-human -human interaction. This is one of the things that humans do more than any other animal, it takes up a really large portion of our cognitive real estate is our ability to do what we're doing right now, which is one-on-one -on -one interaction with another person. So the, the, the paleoanthropologists will talk about these as dyadic connections. There's interesting research on, we can look at extant hunter-gatherer tribes and you can actually sort of directly map the success with which they manage 
one-on-one interactions to their genetic survivability. That is to the factors like their, their BMI or, or female fertility. Um, the, the better you are at managing these interactions, the more you're going to survive. So we really care about this. Our brain is really wired to do interactions. Very little of that's linguistic. I mean, the, the content, the transcript, let's say, of the text of what we're saying back and forth is a, a small fraction of the information going back and forth. So these circuits care about what they're seeing. It cares about tonality in your voice. It cares about body language and how you're how you're moving in the room. It cares about uh, an effect called limbic consonance, where uh, I'm going to start to maybe pace your voice a little bit. I'm going to start to mimic some of your voice patterns. And there's a very subtle signal in there about what's happening in the relationship. Uh, this is what our mind associates with one-on-one interaction. And so one of the interesting paradoxes that happened in the social media age is that as people began spending more time on social media, they began to feel potentially lonelier. And it seemed paradoxical because social media is based on, at least it used to be, and this is a different topic before they transformed it, but at least it used to be built around interacting with people. And the more people were doing that, they were getting more lonely what's going on. It's because the mind does not recognize, the paleolithic mind does not recognize the bitmap emoji or cool exclamation point on a little glowing piece of glass as interacting with another human being. The prefrontal cortex says, yeah, okay, I'm, this is, I know that this is Stephen on the other end of this. I know I'm talking to him, but these other deeper parts of your mind says we haven't really interacted with anyone in days or in hours. And we're feeling quite lonely. So I think it's one of the real surprises of this sort of hyper-connected age is that it can be actually quite antisocial to shift more of your social interactions into these highly artificial media. Well, I think that's one of the great ironies of the, the digital connectivity is the way in which it often removes our capacity to be present with the people we're actually present with under the guise of trying to connect us with those that are not in the room. Um, and that, I think that's a, that's a clearly it's a, it's a, it's a kind of very widespread uh, phenomenon that we, you know, we, we can be on our phones instead of with the people that we're with. And uh, what it touch on this whole notion of being wired and sort of connected. And you've written, I think, very powerfully about the fact that we're not made to be wired as human beings are constantly, uh, constantly connected with a screen. First, I think it's very important to, to lay out, as you do in, in the book very clearly, that the instincts that are being tapped into to make us, to co-opt our attention, to distract us, to take as much of our energy as possible on, onto these screens, those deep instincts are being tapped into very intentionally by these multi-multi-billion-dollar corporations with attention experts on their staff trying to figure out exactly how to manipulate as much of our time as possible. That is, in fact, what their business model is based upon. Do you want to say just a, a word about that? Because I think if, if one doesn't realize just how, how much this, the deck, both physiologically spiritually, psychologically, and economically in a way is stacked against you in this regard, you, you don't have a hope in hell of being able to win against the situation we're currently in. So 2010 to 2012 is the key transition point. So we get the iPhone in 2007. If you go to, let's say, 2008 and look at the average iPhone user, they're not checking it 185 times a day. I mean, you, the, the original vision for the iPhone, as Steve Jobs talked about it, as I confirmed with his head engineer, was to be the best phone you've ever had, the best iPod you've ever had, and to put those together in the same device because Jobs thought it was inelegant 
to have an iPod and a cell phone in your pocket, right? So the original iPhone was trying to take behaviors we were already doing, making the experience better, classic jobs. We didn't look at them all the time. By 2012, we're looking at our phones all the time. So what happened in between there, it's a, a, a criminally undertold story. This, what I call the great re-engineering that occurred during this 2010 to 2012 period, it was led by Facebook. Facebook really led this movement because they were the first major social media platform to begin preparing for an IPO. So they brought the adults on board. We got to bring in the people who actually understand, okay, we got to get our revenue numbers up to get our revenue numbers up to get our, our initial share price. We got to get user engagement minutes vastly increased. So how do we do this? They completely transformed what social media was. And I'm going to argue that these transformations is what trained us to think of our phone as a constant companion that we looked at uh, all the time. They basically did two things. First, they blew up the whole original premise of social media, which was, hey, this is a place for you to post information about yourself, for people you care about to post information about themselves. And now you can go on. We're all in the same network. You can easily see what people you care about are up to. So a, a profile-based structure, which makes a lot of sense. Basically, people were doing this with homemade websites and blogs. Facebook said our interface is easier. So it's about connection, connecting the world. They threw that completely out the window. They said, uh, you know, forget that. What we're going to do instead is introduce an infinite scroll timeline that's populated by machine learning algorithms that are going to study you. You're a vector of a couple hundred different data points. And we're going to study you and your behavior. And we're going to pull from all sorts of different feeds, some of them from people you know, but largely from uh, other types of entities, other individuals, media outlets, online outlets. And we're going to use algorithms to pull information and put it into an endless scroll feed. You can keep scrolling where everything is algorithmically optimized to press some sort of button that our statistical algorithms have basically teased out to exist in your neural circuitry. And now social media, you can just get an endless hit of a sort of very shallow but intense in the moment entertainment, which, again, if this was the pitch, when most people signed up for social media, no one would have signed up for it. You signed up for it because they had this network effect. My roommate's on it. I can find out what his girlfriend's status is. Completely changed that. The second thing they did was the introduction of social approval indicators. And this is where you really get to the deep psychology of the human brain. They added the like button. This was 2009 for Facebook. And it completely transformed the game. Because now, when you hit that icon on your phone, the information that was waiting for you are these bits about, are other people thinking about you? And what are they thinking about you? Are people happy with what you've done recently? Or even more poignantly, are people upset at what you've done recently? Or perhaps even worse, are people ignoring what you've done recently? And this information is going to continually and intermittently update. So you never know what's there until you hit it. Those two transformations, making social media about intermittent incoming social approval indicators and transforming from profile-based connectivity to endless scroll timelines, completely changed our relationship with these devices. And now they became something you go to at every moment of downtime or boredom. You have this sort of simulacrum of engagement that you can access through the screen at just a quick swipe. And we retrained ourselves to look at these things all the time. So there is nothing fundamental about the fact that we do this. The fact that we look at our phones all the time, this is not Steve Jobs. It's Mark Zuckerberg. So it was essentially we were retrained to use these phones in a way that I would say is seriously detrimental to our, to our, our, our welfare and, and happiness. We were retrained to do that basically to make sure that an IPO number was hit. Yeah, I think it's very important to make clear just how, how unprecedented in all of human history 
this situation is. I mean, there's never been a moment in the entirety of human history in which there was so little time alone, so little time in quiet, so little time for thinking. And it's simply not compatible with the way in which we are evolved as a species to think that that such a radical transformation to our habits could be brought about without vast cost. And it may not seem like vast cost initially, but I think what we're seeing is psychologically, even at the level of satisfaction, the sort of visual, the, the, the screen burnout is, a, is an index of something much, much deeper and, and, and of a far longer history in us than we can possibly imagine. There's really there's there's three there's really three things that I see your your work in digital minimalism to bring about. The first is that is is this point about how abnormal it is. This is a very recent development in human history. Even though of course at the twentieth nineteenth to twentieth century there's an increase in the amount of connectivity we have. You know we of course have the telegraph, the graph, and then you know, we, the radio, and then it moves moves and it, as as it were there's a kind of increase in the amount of time that we might be on screens with the television and then with the internet. So it's it's moving very quickly in that direction, but even in the last ten years, there's been this that this enormous jump up in the amount of time that we're we're sort of pseudo connected. So the first is I think to make clear very much how abnormal this situation is in all of human history, and to take a really hard look at whether it's possible for us to thrive in a situation that is so different from the one in which all of us and our ancestors have lived in relation to. Um, then the second is is how how bad this can be for us, and then and then third, how radical the breaks with these habits we've taken on so quickly need in a way need to be. Now, no doubt, many other people have greater levels of interdiscipline than I do, and are you know far more cognizant about their use of technology and less likely to just kind of slide into new habits through the, the bells and whistles. I, I think of myself as an unusually distractible person. But I have had to make take really radical steps in relation to these technologies. I mean, my mind is 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 weak enough and distractible enough of it as it is, without literally the biggest distraction in all of human history, right there, always constantly with me in my pocket, on the screen, the click of a button or the swipe of a screen. Largely, thanks to your work, Cal, I've been able to think very critically about my own use of technology, uh, which of course I've been aware of as a problem and you know, not having the phone in the bedroom when I go to sleep and not looking at it first thing in the morning. These are habits I've, I've tried to hold to for some time, but it wasn't until I read Digital Minimalism that I took a really deep look at how pervasive these things were in my, in my life and, and had to confront the fact that I wasn't going to be able to just sort of do it less. I wasn't going to be able to just cut back by 20 or 30 percent uh, in some you know, arbitrary way. Uh, I had to radically change my relation to these technologies. And again, other people may have success taking a different approach. But in my case, it meant taking uh, virtually every app off of my telephone, including email, all of the news apps, um, even Safari, suppressing Safari in my phone, because otherwise I had literally in my in my pocket. And you know, the first, after I took email off my phone, I don't know how many times a day I would click, I would take out of my pocket my phone and swipe up and click where the email used to be, just instinctively as a kind of, you know, dopamine hit or whatever the case was. So I'm not suggesting my story is going to be a, some sort of paradigm for others, but, uh, you know, I'm someone who has 
thought quite a bit about the contemplative life over many years, given my academic research, given my interest in, in university communities and learning, given my, my you know, long, decades of thinking about the nature of, of the human being, the soul, how we can thrive spiritually. And yet I found myself in this situation just hitting, hitting a tsunami that I was absolutely ill-equipped to avoid or evade. And so what I'd like is if you could give just a little bit of a sense of some of the strategies you yourself employ or you, your readers or things you recommend that give people a fighting chance to reclaim their own, let's call it spiritual freedom against these forms of technological habit. Well, you can't be casual about any of it. So I, I think the, the forces arrayed to get you looking at these screens are so powerful that the unfortunate reality is that there, there, there is no casualness that can be allowed. I mean, I mean typically what, what occurs with interesting new technologies is that there's an exuberance cycle, let's say about 10 years long, where people are exuberant about it and exploratory. And the idea is this is how you kind of figure out, hey, what works, what doesn't, how is this technology going to evolve? In this case, we had an exuberant cycle that halfway through it, hundreds of billions of dollars were suddenly on the line. And you had these companies come in and completely exploit this temporary period of openness that people had because, you know, Jobs was an interesting guy and this thing was sleek and it was interesting and this is clearly the future and we all want to try it out. And it was all kind of interesting. And then you suddenly have giant venture money behind these companies saying, hey, everyone is open to this. Let's rewire how they behave. So there, there's just huge forces behind this. I mean, this is the core of the, of the, of the digital minimalism book. You have to essentially start from the tabla rasa. You, you, you cannot take the, the random accretion of habits, many of which were sort of pushed by these forces outside of your control, and then say, now I'm going to try to tame these uh, 20%, 30%. It, it, it's not going to work. You need to actually start from scratch. Go back to, let's say, 2006 era technology habits before any of this stuff was introduced and say, well, what do I care about? What do I want to do in my professional life, in my community life, in my personal life? What matters for a deep life? What matters for a life that is going to be sort of both spiritually, professionally, and socially satisfying? And then deploy technology, bring them back into your life and deploy strategically only when you're supporting these particular things. I mean, it's the analogy, this was an, an, an older book in Deep Work. I gave this analogy of how farmers think about their tools so much differently than a lot of new entrepreneur types think about their technology tools. And I spent time with a farmer uh, his name is Forrest Pritchard. He has a sort of beautiful grass farm, which he raises a steer on in the Shenandoah here. So not, not, not so far. And he, he sells at my local farmer's market. So we get across paths. And I, I had him go into all the details about the decision about whether or not to buy a hay baler. It was like a really philosophically rich decision that had to do with like the health of the soil and ultimately like what he was trying to accomplish. And the point is for like a farmer, you know what you're trying to do and you're really wary about tools. Because you don't want to waste money and you're going to go out, you know, you, you got to be careful. It could cause more harm than good. You're very careful about what tools do I buy? When am I going to invest money in, et cetera? Uh, we're the opposite when it comes to technology tools. We often just say, I don't know, this could be useful. I, I heard about it somewhere. I mean, I'm bored. Like there might be some feature. It's going to help my business somehow in a way I can't really articulate it. We just bring it into our lives and then it, then it completely takes over. So I'm, I'm, my big picture advice here is the tabula rasa approach. Start from scratch. What do I care about? Okay, now that I know that, I can deploy technology very strategically, like the farmer choosing his tools. 
I'm going to use this technology in this way to help this thing I really care about. You know, I'm stuck at home because of a, a, a coronavirus lockdown. Well, what I want to do is be able to actually see my close family members. So I'm going to use Zoom. I'm deploying this technology for this purpose. It's, it's because I can we can do these calls and it's going to amplify this thing I care about. You know, it's a, it's a certain way of thinking in which the tech still helps. Like you're going to, you're going to be happy this technology exists, but you're putting it to use on your own terms completely changes the rules of engagement. And suddenly you're not stuck in this world trying to get out. You're creating your own world and putting these tools to use in ways that, that proves useful. You take this to lengths that are very illuminating. You wrote on your blog, I think recently that uh, you schedule when you will check email, if you will check email uh, in a given in a given day, or it was a sentence sentence something like that. Is that the length that you think it for many of us it has to come to that that one steps back even from an from a technology that is ubiquitous as email and as 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 const, as much work as go over email. You're saying even with something like that, perhaps even especially with something like that, step back and have an intentional relation to it. Yeah, well, an email is a very interesting case, and and it's sort of worth. Uh, uh, pausing on this because we, we have two classes of technology that seem to have a very similar effect on us right now. And yet when we look closer, the, the underlying causes are different. And, and this is actually you know, worth making this distinction. So we, we have the technologies, we'll call them in our personal lives, like the social media, the online news, delivered mainly through our phone. Do we look at all the time? Then there's technologies in the professional sphere that we also are looking at more than we want. And I think email and Slack are the core examples there. So it feels very similar. Like these are new tools that you look at more than you want. But email and Slack, is, it's a, a different kind of more richer story. I have a, a book coming out on this in the winter. So we're sort of editing the manuscript now. So I've, I've spent years really going deep uh, into, into email and I've been, some of my recent New Yorker articles have been sort of serializing uh, some of these ideas. So with, with email, you don't have something that was engineered to grab your attention. Right. So it's not as if there's someone that's going to make more money. You know, Microsoft's going to make more money if you send more emails in Outlook, for example. Uh, so what happened with email is actually a, a, a richer story where, where basically the introduction of this tool inadvertently transformed the way we worked. It ushered in a, a workflow that's built on this sort of constant ad hoc unstructured conversation, basically the way that you would naturally coordinate with a group of two or three people on the Savannah and scaling it up to whole organizations because now we had this sort of low friction asynchronous tools and we could do that. And so in the world of work, the issue is email ate all the workflows and everything became about just ongoing unstructured conversation. And so it's difficult to get away from it because it's actually where the work is happening. And, and one of the things I, I've, I've been arguing more recently and certainly in my book is this is one of the reasons why it's actually kind of difficult, though, though I have techniques like you, you, you referenced there and, and I have very specific email habits. Um, it's very difficult just to throw norms or habits at email, just to say, like, well, let's have a better norm in our company about response time or batch your inbox checks. You know, this can help. But it can't ultimately solve the problem because the underlying workflow of your company is probably such that everything has to unfold through ongoing ad hoc unstructured conversations. And so when someone does step away from the inbox for four hours, it actually could slow things down because there's not an alternative way that this work gets done. So it's a bit of a diversion, but it's one I've been fascinated by recently. Similar outcomes, looking at screens too much, uh, really different dynamics going on. So in, in the world of work, 
we have gotten lazy about how we think about how work should happen. And we just say, this is so easy. Let's just rock and roll in an inbox. And now we're, now we're stuck. Now we're stuck with 20 or 30 ongoing threads. This unstructured nature is an incredibly inefficient way to deploy cognitive capital. It's also a much more complex puzzle to piece together because you can't just stop using your inbox. You've got to replace this. What's going on in our personal lives on social media, this and that? Well, for the most part, you could drop your phone in the sewer grate and you'll be okay. It's largely dispensable what we do when we look at the screen in a non-professional context. So uh, there's sort of two different worlds going on here that have two different potential sets of answers. So I think that's a good moment to transition into deep work. If digital minimalism is about the, the, the strategies one might deploy to open one's life up in order to do the deeper things, to consecrate oneself to, to things of greater value, deep work is about how to do that and in what, what are the strategies actually getting that uh, to living the deeper life. So tell us a bit about the argument of deep work. So when you're talking about non-rote knowledge work, one of the more important behaviors is undistracted concentration. So, I mean, if, if you, roughly speaking, if you run a, a, an office-based organization, as opposed to, let's say, like a manufacturing organization or an agricultural organization, what is the core thing you're trying to do? Well, your main capital resource is human brains, and you're trying to get value produced by these human brains. That's at the core of knowledge work. And the activity that is most efficient at sort of alchemizing neuronal activity into things that then makes money for your organization is focused concentration. That's what allows the brain to, to operate as effectively as possible. Now, by contrast, if you take a human brain and say, okay, what I'm going to do is have it focus on this thing, let's say writing the white paper, whatever that's important, but I'm going to make it every four to five minutes, quickly switch over and look at an inbox or a Slack channel just to kind of keep these ongoing work conversations going. Now you're taking the same, the same hunk of neuronal machinery and you're operating it at probably 20% of its capacity. Because it turns out the way the attention systems work in the brain, it's actually a bit of a, a, a slow process. The prefrontal cortex has to start suppressing input from unrelated networks. It has to start amplifying input from the related networks. It takes a little time to get this all to stabilize. Okay, now the brain is ready to work on this one thing. Guess what happens when you take that brain and say, wait, wait, let's just look real quick at this inbox and see like 10 or 20 uh, obligations we can't quite answer and start firing up all of those circuits. Now let's, before that's done, let's switch it back to the original thing. Well, now the circuits are all jumbled. You're basically getting uh, very low performance out of the brain. It's like buying a very expensive piece of factory in your, in your car manufacturing firm and then running it in, you know, running it too hot or getting sand in the gears. And it, it's, it's much slower than it could be putting the steering wheels on the car. And so the argument of deep work is, Hey, unbroken concentration is an incredibly valuable activity in knowledge work. And yet we're accidentally making ourselves worse at it. And this seems like a, a, a paradox almost. Like we're, we're, we're accidentally making ourselves worse at the core activity that produces value and that this is a problem. So that was the, that was the core, let's say, motivating observation of deep work is that this mismatch was going on in the knowledge sector. Let's talk a bit more. There's, I th see deep work to be working at two levels fundamentally. There's the level of productivity, and then there's a kind of psychological or metaphysical argument that's kind of implicitly uh, uh, humming underneath the surface. But just to start with the, the, the productivity side of it, there's a paradox that, that is, is, I think, runs through your work, or let's say through life that your work to dis dis discusses, and that is that 
the most if, the most productive the most productive work is work that comes out of thought and so if you subordinate your whole life to you know getting this done or getting that done paradoxically you're not as effective as if you step back and kind of think about things and that dynamic holds true so that actually thinking just about how to accomplish this task is better than not thinking about it. But the most effective thinking is thinking that's not subordinated to an instrumental outcome at all. You write quite a bit about the need for, you know, going for long walks without your phone uh, in which, you know, you're, you're, you may sometimes be thinking about a certain problem, a proof in your computer science work, for example, but other times you're just, you're just, you're unplugging. And you, you write quite a lot about the importance of time that isn't dedicated, it isn't task driven. And so I wonder if you can say a few words about what is what you think is going on in this paradox in which the most powerful and productive activity we can undertake is often that which is not subordinated to an instrumental outcome. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a deep history in this. I mean, I mean this idea of like the, the, the non-instrumentality of deep thought I mean, we're, we're now we're getting back to Aristotle, right? Now we're in the now we're in the ethics at this point, which was sort of where he ended up. That this is, I mean, this is a, a very teleological way of thinking about things, but but ultimately this is what humans do that others don't, and so sort of pushing that to its to its teleological extreme is that sort of uh, to be in non-instrumental cogitation is like the ultimate expression of humanness. And therefore, from an ethical perspective, what we should be, what should we try to do? So even from the very beginning of organized thought in the Western canon, I think this, this notion of structured thought, perhaps not even towards a particular instrumental aim, is somehow deeply human and, and, and connected to our experience. Uh, you know, I talk about in deep work. I mean, so as you say, deep work is it's pragmatic, except for there's a chapter in there that's not. <laughs> I kind of slipped it in where I, 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 I brought in philosophy. I brought in, I brought in, uh, brought in philosophy, brought in theology, brought in mythology because, uh, there's something much deeper in it. And one of the things I talked about there is that our understanding of the world and our place in the world, you know, this is not a, there's not a, just an objective truth that we just observe and it's out there and we know it. It's constructed from structured thought. Our world is constructed by structured thought. We, we take in, you know, all sorts of different inputs. And at some point we have to think about ourselves and our experience, even our notion of self is constructed, our ethical systems are constructed, our understanding of the world and where we fit it in and the currents of how things move. None of this can exist. This thought matter cannot exist without the actual work of introspective structured thought. I mean, it's just fundamental to, to creating your world. Uh, I, I quoted the science writer Winifred Gallagher in that book talking about uh, my, my world is what I choose to pay attention to. She was sort of, and she was she was talking eloquently in a book about uh, getting through a bad cancer diagnosis and how much she learned, how constructed her world is, her understanding of her world is, is that, that paying attention to the right things, thinking about the right things, is a completely different world than paying attention to other things, like the diagnosis or what goes on. How much of our our experience of the world is constructed? So, structured, introspective thought uh, is at the core of being human. It's at the core of the world around us. It's at the core of sort of understanding our entire trajectory through the world. And so there is great peril. I mean, I agree with this premise is that there, there is great peril in significantly reducing that. Because then what's going to be structuring your world, your understanding of your world, your place in the world, your trajectory through the world, it's going to be sort of haphazardly and incidentally constructed 
by forces that do not have your best interest in mind and really probably shouldn't be used to construct your your worldview instead. If you let, let's say, a social media addiction and a, a workday spent on email structure your world, it's a very stressed, non-resilient, sort of emotionally drained, not very uh, foundational or happy understanding of the world, for example. It's just not a state that you really want to be in. So, uh, this type of deep thinking is really fundamental in almost all aspects of the human experience, which is part of why I, I'm perplexed by the casualness with which we're ready to sort of dismiss it because you know, looking at this is kind of fun. Yeah, let's stay with this for a moment. There's a real sense in which one has to think very hard about why thinking has any purchase on reality at all. I mean, why is quiet time with yourself something that has an effect in how you understand yourself, but also in how effective you can be in the world. I mean, it, it seems to suggest that thought has purchased on reality itself, or in some sense, it is reality itself. I've been reading quite a bit of Freeman Dyson lately in preparation for the release of an interview with this. Uh, of course, he's died a couple of months ago, a great, great man. And you know, he says, you know, mind is inherent in every electron. And one can go back, as you say, to Aristotle, in which, you know, Aristotle says the actuality of thought is life. And so what one comes to, if one really thinks about what's going on in thinking itself, is to confront the reality that the universe itself, reality, let's call it, reality generally conceived, is thinkable, or in a certain sense, is thinking. What is the difference between what you call a deep life on the one hand and a shallow life on the other? What, what actually is the difference between those? Well, I, the, the deep life is a term, you know, I, I introduced it more recently because I had noticed readers of my books had taken on this almost philosophical stance that hadn't been completely articulated. And I, I work backwards to say, well, maybe I should try to understand what this is and, and put some put some label to it, some sort of unifying label. This is just me labeling the, the kind of the excavation already done by, by others. But, but essentially, to me, the deep life, which unifies a lot of these ideas, is where uh, you work backwards in the areas that are important to you. You, you start with what matters which is a question that often requires quite a bit of this reflection and structured thought and introspection. And it's an answer that revises and through study and, and, and introspection and reflection. And you focus on those and try to take steps towards promoting those perhaps radical steps in some occasions. You know, I'm willing to radically reconfigure my life to support this, this, and this. And then you very scrupulously avoid almost everything else that you can. So I don't want things that are going to kind of just pull or dilute my attention or not these things I really care about or where I can't avoid that because, you know, I have to pay my taxes, I have to pay my water bill, then I'll be very productive about it so that it's so that its footprint, uh, its footprint is minimized. It's essentially what I what I pitch. It's basically what I pitch to my readers is this is we, this seems to be what you should be working backwards from some notion of like, I know what's important to me. I take very strong steps towards supporting those things. I'm, I'm pretty ruthless about distractions that don't help me with those things. And what I can avoid, I contain because I'm disciplined and productive with my systems for the the, the sort of the unavoidable uh, administrative. And that kind of unifies digital minimalism. It unifies deep work. It unifies a lot. Uh, even back to a book I wrote earlier called So Good They Can't Ignore You about the, the myth of 
passion in terms of uh, the misapplication of passion, I should say, when it comes to career thinking also touches on this theme. So it's a theme that runs through a lot of my work, that the deep life is a good life. One thing I think that this this puts the lie to in a very complete way is the whole prejudice against education that is not instrumental, the liberal arts, generally speaking, or to demand that those forms of education become instrumental. I mean, the paradox is that as soon as you subordinate reading Shakespeare to demanding that it make you good at marketing or good at selling this or whatever, you lose the deeper insight that reading Shakespeare can give you that would, if you didn't in that sense, lose it by subordinating it, actually be extraordinarily productive in your life in yet unknown ways. And so you know, this really, I think, your the insight that you make in you have in deep that runs all through deep work really obliterates the idea that education should be principally about outcome or outcome driven or practices so much as it should be about the depth that enables you to undertake those practices, whatever they are, more completely and effectively. We've taken for granted, I think, the amount of, of training actually involved in a rich cognitive life. We took advantage in part because there was so much of, historically speaking, the life of the, the small lucky fraction that actually had some ability to pursue something as luxurious or as, as uh, structured education. So much of the process was a cognitive fitness type routine. It was it was strengthening your ability to focus, to grapple with complex ideas, to, the, the work your way through how to do a real exegesis of a complex text. I mean, this was just... Uh, Part of the, the the point of education didn't have to be articulated. You 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 came out of this process with with a mind that was in very good shape. Just like if you were in ancient Sparta and trying to get your warrior society ready for war, you would just say our whole system is around you know uh, sword skills and weightlifting and cardiovascular and everything's about making people very uh, physically fit and good fighters. And so the the cognitive world, this is what you would get out of education. This was this was true even quite recently. I mean, if I think about even my own like liberal arts education experience. I'm, I'm right on the bubble. I arrived at college without a cell phone, without a laptop. So it's, it's right, right before those type of things happened. And then, I mean, how much of that education was being in the stacks with books and there was no ready distraction. I went to school at Dartmouth in New Hampshire. So it's like, if you wanted to go to the, whatever, the student center, there's going to be four feet of snow. <laughs> you're going to have to go, you know, by the time you, your dog sled team got you to the library, you weren't going to leave anytime soon or whatever. And you just got, there was a comfort with uh, the disc cognitive discomfort of thinking, keeping your attention on one thing, doing structured thought, grappling with ideas. And I think that's absolutely fundamental. So I used a Spartan analogy because I think it's relevant to our culture right now. If you lived in ancient Sparta, uh, a, a warrior ability was prized. And so you, you uh, because you were a warlike society, so you, you would prioritize that. This is what you did with kids. You, you take them from their families. You would train them in the gymnasiums, et cetera. We now are in a very, especially in the U.S., it's a very cognitive environment. The knowledge sector is growing. It's getting more complex. The more rote work is being automated or outsourced. It's sort of our warfare of the 21st century is often cognitive. And yet we are getting worse at developing these cognitive athletes. We are much less comfortable with concentration. We have much less comfort with taking on complex ideas or complex text. I mean, I, I can only imagine the the, the great intellectuals of two generations past confronting, let's say, the discourse on Twitter, 
would be a like a dystopian revelation for them. Thinking about relatives of my own, uh, like my grandfather is a sort of a, a great uh, Baptist apologist and theologian. Um, imagine, I just imagine him confronting what what passes for rhetoric, let's say in, in, in like our current age, and I think it would be it would be quite quite disappointing. I just don't think there's any question. We're living in in an age in which the ideology is on this is is simply wrong. I mean, the idea is that somehow you know more busyness is more productive, when in fact uh, that leads to patterns of life in which we're 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 drowning in unself consciousness, and only by stepping back and recollecting ourselves, coming to a sense of the deeper patterns of ourselves and of the real, are we then able to then take that insight and bring it into our lives. I mean, in, a, in a way, if you go back through the philosophical tradition, you can, one way of thinking about the human being is with two fundamental faculties. You know, one is knowing and the other is, is, is willing or thinking and being, you could say. And in a way, the, the aim is, is to bring those two together. You, you, you're, the thinking is what gives you the insight, the illumination to live, but you can't live simply in a, in a life of, of contemplation, as Aristotle says famously in the 10th book of the ethics you just mentioned, you know, alas, that would be a life too high for man, simply to live a life of constant contemplation. And yet we don't want the, 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 our action to be alienated from what the insight we have, but rather to live in relation to the insight that our thinking gives us. So it's the, it's the thinking living. And I take it that's what this kind of metaphor of the deep life is about it's the it's the conscious life in which those the illumination of thought which brings you to a deeper account of what is real i mean if, if thinking weren't real it wouldn't it wouldn't have any purchase in re a reality right if if contemplation were just a kind of uh let's call it a, a kind of a fanciful you know pastime i mean it wouldn't then convert into what you know into the actions of your life. It wouldn't make you either more strategic or more careful or more loving or more true or more virtuous or or more or, or happier if those moments of, of, of contemplation were absolutely uh, disconnected from reality itself. In fact, as, I, as I'm suggesting Dyson and certainly Aristotle and Plotinus would say, in thinking we are coming to know more completely what the real is, but this this really raises the whole question of of, of vision. You know, in the in the philosophical tradition, illumination precedes action. You know, uh, Aristotle would say you don't do anything without some perception that there's a good in it. Now, you may be wrong about that good, but you know, you don't even lift a fork to your mouth without some sense. Uh, no voluntary action is undertaken without some perception of a good that you are trying to will in the action you you undertake. But this raises the whole question of how our vision comes to be more adequate to the richness and depth of reality. The metaphor of vision we see all over in the, in the, in the literary and philosophical tradition. You think about Homer and Plato and Aristotle. Uh, but, you know, one of my favorite images is in Dante, in which as Dante, you know, the whole comedy in a way is a movement to more adequate forms of seeing so that the forms of willing can also be more adequate. So more adequate forms of seeing what is good and real. Because if you don't see it, then you can't will it. There's that lovely image in Paradiso, one of my favorite images in all of, of all of literature where, where Dante's, he has to drink with his eyes of a river of light. 
you know, just is a this just amazing metaphor of how he needs to have his vision in in ennobled in order to see what is real and true more fully. And and of course, all through the tradition, we have you know metaphors of cloudiness and and distraction. And you know, Boethius is is at the beginning, he can't even see philosophy, uh, lady philosophy. He's, his vision is so clouded. And I think, you know, this is, to go back to digital minimalism, this is what where we find ourselves, many of us, certainly I often find myself, is in a state of clouded vision and distraction such that I, I you know, I'm living, in, living in, the midst of a, in the midst of a cloud. And so I want to ask you about how our vision can be clarified. What do you recommend to recollect ourselves such that we can see what is more clearly? Well, there's really three things I think are important, right? So to, to actually get this knowing that that the, the river of life, you know, through your, your eyes and the Dante-esque, the sort of pilgrimage allegory of, of, of you, you, you come out of it on the other end with a more sophisticated understanding of your world. Uh, there's, there's three things I often look at that I think are impoverished right now in our current moment. So one, as we've been talking about, I think is structured introspective thought. So it's you alone with your mind. Uh, in some of my books, I use the, the notion of solitude as being a state where you're free from input from other minds. So you're not in a mode where you're, you're processing input from other minds, listening to something, talking to something, reading something, but it's, it's you and your mind just taking in the stimulus from the world, trying to make sense of yourself, trying to make sense of your exper uh, your experiences, right? So there's, there's, there's no self-development. There's no growth and understand the world without solitude. So just a sort of thought, you alone with your thoughts. I think the slow engagement with, with complex thoughts of others, as is typically found in the written word, is the second key element. So the, the amount of time to which, which was, again, the foundation of the, the, the whole notion, this is sort of the Jeffersonian notion of what you would want to get out of a liberal arts education is this sort of engagement with these, uh, with these complex ideas, because what happens is your brain becomes a type of brain that can handle these complex ideas. And hey, guess what? Then you can produce them. And then you can have a more nuanced understanding of the world. So slow engagement with complex quality thoughts from others is, is second. And then the, the third thing I think is impoverished is sort of slow interaction, the sort of, I am going to spend time with someone, not sending them a message, but in their world, interacting with them, empathetically understanding them and their perspective. I mean, historically, the novel is what allowed us to, the, to accelerate this process because the novel could tap on some of those same neuronal mechanisms and put ourselves empathetically into other minds, which is why novels are so important, but also doing this in person is equally important. All three of those things, I think, are, are greatly impoverished in the standard American experience right now. And so for me, if you know, you're talking about someone who's young, for example, this is a crisis. You're not getting these three things. You're not developing your life. You're not understanding your, your, your sense of self. You're not understanding your sense of the world. You are going to be sort of stumbling through a haphazardly constructed whatever, which, which has no resilience. I mean, an example that that hit me recently is profound, just to get really concrete about contemporary experiences. So obviously when we're recording this, we're still the corona ep epidemic. I mean, I don't know where we are, but it's not great. And what's most people, most public figures, uh, business owners, uh, people you hear, there's, there's a sort of uh, kind of a panic 
an incoherence about what we should be doing and we can't, and it's, uh, how do we wrap our minds around, you know, risks and deaths and maybe we just need to shut, keep everything shut down and no one can ever, or whatever, and then let's fight on social media. But then today in the New York Times, there's an op-ed written by Father Jenkins, who's the president of Notre Dame. And I believe Notre Dame is Franciscan. I think it's the Franciscan order. I might have that wrong, but I think it's Franciscan. Um, but he has a, there's a, Father Jenkins has a, a sort of deep theological past in training. And there's this, this op-ed he wrote today. He's like, here's why we're opening our university in the fall. And there's a, there's a, a calmness and sort of sitterness in this piece that just felt so missing from what was going on. He said, yes, there's concerns and here's health concerns. Here's other concerns and moral concerns about not having a place for people to go. Uh, other concerns about the life well lived and the leadership and what's gained by being at a university. And, and you read this, you read this op-ed, you read someone who is completely comfortable doing a sophisticated ethical analysis and with some confidence be able to come through and say, this is what we're going to do and why we're going to do it. And it felt so different than everything else in that paper, which was basically, ah, ah, and look at that person, ah, kind of a, a, a just like a, a, I don't know, panic, whatever, you're wrong, I'm wrong, everything's bad. That is this uh, like a little case study of the, the examined life, the mind that was used to complexity. Okay, this is complicated. I think here's what we're going to do. Here's why I think we should do it. There's a calmness to it. There's a slowness to it. I think we could analogize that to so many different aspects of life, that, that what you get when you have that, those, those substructures of complexity, those ease, those you're able to draw upon these other disciplines, you understand yourself, you understand the world, you understand these subtleties. You are able to move through the world in a way that is so much more robust. And so I don't know, I just think that's a nice case study of the moment of what it's like to be, you know, living the Socratic examined life versus, I don't know what we call today, the Zuckerbergian fragmented life. I mean, I don't even think we have a terminology for it, but it's, it's, a, it's a profound difference. It is amazing how you know those moments when, when you see them. One of the most uh, influential people in my life was the teacher and priest named Robert Krauss, who's a, a great theologian, perhaps the greatest theologian of my, my home country. And he lived with very little technology in, in the country, never married, lived a very contemplative life. And yet to be in his presence was all of a sudden to be connected with something very deep. And his insight in the things that he, he wrote, the lectures he gave was so rich. And this is an insight in, in which our obsession with a kind of activity is actually a betrayal of that activity itself, of the very importance of life. We can't attend to that if we're always simply consumed in a kind of, you know, chicken with the head cut off kind of way. You know, I, I defy anyone to find me examples of figures of great accomplishment, whether a virtue in the arts, in literature, philosophy, politics, government, even in business, throughout all of human history that did not spend real time in quiet thought. Whether that's Beethoven or Alexander the Great or Jane Austen, any of Churchill, all of these figures, I defy anyone to find me a single example of someone who lived simply and always immersed in the noise without any time to come up for air. And I think we see we see plenty of examples 
of what happens when you don't come up for air. We see it around us all the time. We see it on the screens. And we know that it's not right. <laughs> There's nothing you see on Twitter that makes you come away and feel uh, ennobled. I mean, I would say a, a really influential book you know, my, for my own development was, uh, it was written by a historian named William Lee Harrison. It was called Lincoln's Virtues. And he does what he calls a moral ethical biography of Lincoln. He says, what I want to understand is all of the different influences on his moral and ethical thinking and the way that he, we're going to, we're going to do a biography of the way that his thoughts evolved and complicated, building up to the point, and the book ends with basically his inauguration. So like what built up over time and what you see is a, a life of uh, intense contemplation trying to understand uh, how, who he was, what the world was, how he lived in relation to the world, what was right, what wasn't right, with these incredibly fraught circumstances under, uh, under huge stakes. And by the time he was inaugurated, and it was literally the day he was inaugurated, you know, he went into the White House and they brought him to dispatch about Fort Sumter. So it's, he had zero time, right? He was thrown right into it, but he had whatever it was, 46 or 54, however old he was, years of, of, of this contemplation and work. He, uh, the works of Shakespeare, obviously the Bible, he only had access to a few things growing up, but he really worked over those books. He thought, he complicated, he evolved. Uh, Harrison calls it a purposive intelligence. So he sort of uh, put his, in, in, developed an intellect towards a purpose. I'm trying to understand this, but I want to be the best. And anyway, so it, to me, that was a very affecting book because it was an interesting dissection of how someone through the contemplative life, through the examined life, builds up these really complex and effective structures of thought and subtlety that allows them then to take on great hardship and complexities and, and do something heroic. Let's, let's talk for a minute, picking up on just that, about how one cultivates those kinds of, of habits and virtues. And let's say in particular in relation to organizational culture, uh, as, as, you, as you know, we're, we're, we're about to launch our first degree program here at Ralston College. You know, we're building a, a new institution of higher education from the ground up. And given how much thought you've given to this, I'd love to hear, in fact, I think we first connected on this very, very question about how you think organizations can, and in particular universities, can maximize the deep intellectual work that students and faculty alike, and administrators too, can accomplish. How do you set things up? And you know, of course, we've given this a lot of thought. How do you think things have to be set up in order to maximize that good? Well, I mean, universities in particular, I think it's a huge issue. I mean, the, the, the article I think I sent you when we first met was I, I did this big long form piece for the Chronicle of Higher Education that was titled as Email Making Professors Stupid. And I, I basically make the claim that the, the way that we run universities has completely undermined essentially the entire point of the universities. It's entirely self-defeating. And that the university should be citadels of concentration. They should be like the exemplar that shines out the, the sort of workflow city on the hill that is the example for like the rest of the, the, the business economy to say, oh, we could be doing things better. Uh, so what I've learned, I mean, essentially, you have to be prepared to make radical changes. Uh, we, we have become 
comfortable not in, in academia, but also just in knowledge work in general. Academia basically just fell into the same habits, but it's even worse because there's not a, a profit motive uh, or the ability of a single leader to come in and make rapid changes very easily in academia. So just the, the problems get even worse, just like you see with like government bureaucracies. I mean, we, we've fallen into these highly destructive workflows that are based on, it's very ad hoc, on the fly, unstructured communication done over digital tools. And we take it for granted that this is what work is. And we have a very, we have a failure of imagination to actually leave that paradigm, right? We're, we're the goldfish that doesn't know what water is. We just think this is what work is. And so we can't get past, well, how do we just sort of tame this way of working? You know, so like we should have some, maybe what we can do is we can have some norms about response time expectations, or we can, we can maybe try to batch our emails or write smarter emails, but you're still within this structure of working. I think the change needs to be more radical. So, I, you know, I wrote this op-ed earlier this year for the Times where I talked about Henry Ford and the first assembly line and how much of a, a radical shift that was from how they were building cars before and how, how they were building cars before was very, very natural and convenient. It was called a craft method. You basically just put car, a car in progress up on sawhorses and a team of people built it. And it, all a factory would be is you had like 10 of those going on in the same floor. So you just took the way that any craftsman team would build a car and you just sort of scaled it up. Email is kind of like this, like, well, just like, let's just figure things out on the fly. We can do it over email. Henry Ford, it was a, a, a massive, pain and disruption to figure out how to replace that with the assembly line. It was, it cost more money. It was more complicated. It created a lot of hard edges. You know, it was very hard to get it to work at first, right? So it, it made things worse before it made it better. They had to hire a bunch more managers. There was a huge capital investment. It was not at all natural, but you know, no one liked it, but it produced cars 10 to hundred X faster. And I think that's the way we need to be thinking about knowledge organizations is that we have to throw out the whole idea that let's just give everyone a, a, an email address connected to their name and rock and roll and we'll figure things out. And we have to actually start from scratch to build up things smarter. Now, one of those things is very complicated, but the, the, the high level point I'll give is that I think we need to separate work execution from workflow. So sort of how you actually execute work on your own and knowledge work is often quite creative and very hard to systematize and that's fine. But the workflow what are the processes to figure out what needs to be done that assigns work to people, that reviews that work, that keeps track of how much people should be up on their plate, how different processes interact? That has to be optimized. And that is a very hard Henry Ford trying to figure out how to make the assembly line work type process that is going to have hard edges and create problems, require more money and annoy a lot of people, but could make your organization or your university 10 to 100x better than it would be with the easy solution. So instead of giving you a specific answer, I've sort of diverted around that to, to do a little productivity philosophy here. But I did want to set the philosophical stage that I think the fundamental way we, we work is, is uh, it's, it's just fundamentally broken. Mm. Changing it is not going to be habits. It's going to be a whole new way of thinking about how an organization runs. Yeah, I think that's completely right. And we're certainly determined uh, to, uh, to do exactly that. One part of that that is often on my mind is how you teach students how to read. And you know, it's simply the case that you can't become capable of higher order thought in a state of distraction. And you know, if if you have, you know, when you're let's say you're writing a paper and your, your screen is open, if you're if you're you got your, your computer on, if you're constantly being interrupted by this notification and that notification, it's just not it's really just not even possible to think. And the same is true of reading too. 
the the courses that I that were most formative for me. I mean, we often read only one great text over the course of an entire academic year of a, of, a, of a class, and you know, you would read things over and over. And the the more deeply and more carefully and more patiently you read them, the more you saw. And you, you, it's simply not possible to get to those deeper insights in a state of distraction. And so. I think the the beginning point, in a way, is that one has to 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 have a fairly radical break with the the cult of the internet and the cult of distraction and the cult of connectivity, because until you've done that, you can't you can't do the you can't either do the deep thinking or even begin to learn how to do the deep thinking, which is where the gold lies. Yeah, we have. I mean, think about an academic institution what you're essentially doing is investing in brains, right? Like we're, we're going to commit to lifetime employment of a brain, basically the care and feeding of this brain you know, for, for, for its entire life, because we want it to produce original thought matter that improves the world and effectively uh, transmit how to do this to younger brains. So we can kind of replicate itself through the classroom. And, Instrumentally, you should be thinking like, okay, our whole job is to figure out how to get these brains to do that as well as possible. We don't think that way, though. Instead, we think about what's going to make this process more convenient for me. What's going to be the easiest way to get this going? Oh, I work in payroll. Like, you know, I really, this is, a, I need, if they could just fill out the spreadsheet, then then that's going to make my life, you know, then I could get this done easier. You get this sort of uh, faux equality of purpose. Like, look, it's, you know, what this really is, is maybe this institution's really, it's just like a place for people to come together and have jobs. And let's let's not try to make some distinction between the the academic brains and then the maybe the logistical support over here. Like, why is it fair that they have to do more of this? And 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 the whole thing gets washed out. And what you see in computer science is they have other options. Is the computer scientists say, well, I don't know. I mean, Google's going to pay me five x salary. So if, if I'm going to be filling out forms all day, I might as well get paid, you know, five times more. Um, and so that that is the whole matter. So like, take for example, my when I was at uh, MIT. This was when I was doing my doctoral work there. I, I was able to be exposed to some of the biggest minds in the world. So Turing Award winners, MacArthur Genius Grant winners. I think I was around four Turing Award winners and three MacArthur Award winners on my floor when I was a grad student, right? What did the very top professors at the very top institution that had the most resources available that like anyone would kill to have them, what did they do? What, what was the first thing they did with that power? dedicated assistance. They didn't care about offices or this or that. You would see like, what did the very top, what did they want once you you got to the very top, the apex of the academic mountain was, I want someone to handle the non-thinking stuff for me so I can do the thinking stuff. And I think it's very instructive that this is, you know, that tells us something that this is where, this is where like professional thinkers wanted to get. And so I can't help but imagine that, yes, it's, it's economically infeasible perhaps for university to have a dedicated assistant, let's say for every professor. But now we have new technologies. Now we have new efficiencies. Now we have all these tools. And this is probably to get more concrete, the, 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 the real lesson of the, the IT productivity revolution is it does make certain processes more effective. What we did, and by we, I mean the knowledge sector in general, is we said, this is great. We can fire the support staff. This stuff is now easy and efficient enough that we can fire support staff and have the, the say, let's say like the frontline cognitive value producers do this stuff on their own. 
great, look at all this money we're saving because we don't hire typists anymore. But this led to an effect called the, the, the diminishment of intellectual specialization in, in sort of the productivity literature, which means that, oh, I can't produce nearly as much stuff because now I'm doing spreadsheets. Now I'm answering emails. Now I have to do my own uh, memo, whatever, requisition forms. Now I can produce at half my old rate. And you end up having to hire twice as many of me to get the same amount of work done. And guess what? My salary was more than the, the people you ended up firing and actually it, your payroll is larger. Uh, than before we began. So like really the right lesson or application of advances in productivity technology is we can now make support and support staff way more efficient. Not that we can eliminate that and now have non-support staff spend more of their time doing the support style work. And so anyway, so this is my vision is that there, there's been a lot of innovation. We have a lot of options going forward, but we have to start from this place of what we're trying to do here is we're trying to get these brains that are going to improve the world with thought and improve the minds of the students. Why don't we relentlessly work backwards from what's going to maximize that goal? Yeah, that's exactly right. How do we design this entire institution around fostering the deep independence and sharpness of mind in our students? Um, that's certainly what we intend to do. I want to wrap things up by having you say a few words about a piece that you wrote recently, which ties in very wonderfully to this, to the whole notion of deep thinking in relation to the challenges of life and in and through the language of, and images of one of the, the great works of literature of our past. You've written recently a wonderful article called The Deep Reset about the Odyssey. Tell us about it. Well, I mean, the impetus here is I was Picking up from my readers, especially younger readers, uh, they did not know how to process the, what was happening in the world, especially with the pandemic and all of the, the disruption and dislocation that it created because of exactly the issue we talked about, the unexamined life. They were adrift, right? So they're living the Zuckerbergian fragmented life. And how do you even make sense of these bad things are happening? You can't control it. More bad things might happen. Uh, information is coming at you from all angles. And I said, well, let me, I'm noticing, right, that when I talk to people, there's an underlying intimation that there's some sort of opportunity in this hardship. There's some sort of deeper down feeling or intimation that like there could be something transformative about these hard times, but people couldn't articulate it because again, we're living the unexamined life. And I, so, so I wrote this piece that said, let me help let me help structure this intimation by going back to one of our you know, original myths. And I'm, I'm looking back at the Odyssey or the, the Homeric myths that we now see in the Odyssey as one of the, the oldest extant pieces of literature in the, in the Western canon, and uh, which has themes that have echoed through almost everything that followed. It's, it's, it's the, there's something so fundamental about it. And so I basically uh, retold the story of the Odyssey through a, a, an essentially Jungian type lens and talked about what is this, this underlying uh, archetype, archetypal story here is like, well, look what's happening is you essentially have a, a, uh, the hero Odysseus, hardship befalls him, the ships are dashed, and things start getting worse and worse as he's trying to make his way back. He, he ends up in a nadir in the myth where he's actually down in the underworld itself. So he's at this uh, mythological low point. But it's it's it, he persists, right? So he he persists out of this nadir. Uh, he he works his way out of the underworld. He works his way through extended hardships that follow. He makes his way back home. So he sort of resiliently survives, makes his way back home, 
confronts a home front that has been in disarray because in the myth, of course, the suitors had had descended and were trying to to win control of the island kingdom. And so he has to do battle with the suitors and uh, literally take back control of his family, of his estate, of his kingdom. And then this is not in the actual translations we have of the Odyssey, but it's it's part of the myth that the Odyssey is telling parts of is that then traditionally he then would leave from here to go on and fulfill the prophecy that was was given to him uh, when he was down in the underworld that said, after you get your act back together, you need to go to the mainland and go on this journey where you're going to go farther and farther inland until you get to a place where uh, your world isn't known about, you're nothing, no one knows about you. Uh, in the myth, the idea is you go and tell people don't know what the ore is you're carrying. And when they think that your ore is a winnowing fork for uh, harvesting grain, that, that you know you're in a place that's completely disconnected from your old structures of ego and meaning. And there you're going to plant the ore in the ground and do these sacrifices to Poseidon and return home after this and live out the rest of your years in peace. The whole thing is an archetypical myth about the human, what the real human instinct is to deal with hardship, which is that you survive with resilience, the difficulty, you get your house and life back in order. And then building off of this experience, you try to have an actual evolution in the sort of the sophistication of the understanding of your life, the, the of yourself, you get past some of your old attachments and come out of it with a stronger, richer, uh, more deeper life. I mean, it's Dante, uh, it's Augustine. Uh, I mean, it, it's again and again, we see similar types of trajectories. So I basically had to tell the story and then do the, the Jungian analysis and basically say, yeah, this is what you're intimating. This is what you're kind of feeling is this story, which is which resonates with us because in for all intents and purposes is true. Right. It, this, this myth is, is getting at something that is true. And this should give you structure about how to think about this time. Well, two two follow up questions to that. The first is. Do we need disruption? I mean, is disruption necessary? I mean, there's a certain there's a certain way of thinking about human life in which you know you just want a, a you know a nice long smooth river and you know it, it, no hardship and it, but it, from what you're saying, it sounds as though actually the disruption, the difficulty, the hardship is the very basis of the going deeper, further, higher. I mean, this seems foundational in so many different places. I mean, we see it in theology. We see it. We see this, of course, in pilgrimage, right? I mean, this is the, the, the core idea of pilgrimage. We see it in the ancient myths. We see it in sort of the more modern theologies. We see it in the work of Jung. We see it in the work of, you know, his disciple Campbell's dissection of the hero's journey. I mean, it's just, it, it seems like this is true, that disruption is part of the human experience. Disruption also seems to be the catalyst I mean, this is the story of Buddha, right? I mean, you, you can't, you, you cannot get away from this particular archetype in almost any source of wisdom or any wisdom tradition we have. That disruption is the catalyst for human development. Well, certainly, I don't think there's any question that that has to be right. Uh, would you say then that the present challenges we're facing, whether it's the overflow of digital data and technology, or whether it's the challenges economically and socially and otherwise of the coronavirus, do you see these as possibilities for growth and deeper insight and in in the end, a even fuller life than we might have had before? No, I, I think they definitely are. And I try to be careful. I don't want to fall into a sort of uh, Nietzschean style 
post-theological ubermensch type thinking here of, of, you know, bloggers like me will then tell you how to do that because we have these established wisdom traditions. So I, I think that's part of it is turning back to established wisdom traditions. And I, I just want to make that caveat because um, I think that's an important piece of thinking about reacting to this disruption. But I, I am hoping, I think this notion of a deep reset is important. I, I think when people go through dislocation, like it's happening now, they get these intimations. Traditionally, theology, wisdom traditions help you make sense of those, right? It's like in science, you see the weird effects that happen when you mix chemicals and the, the, the Rutherford model of the atom. Suddenly all that makes sense, right? And so people have the intimation, these intimations, but because of the fragmented non-examined life, don't really know what to do, of them, do with them. But if they confronted them right now, so I really want to, I, I want to draw from wisdom to try to understand kind of what I'm feeling, how I'm reacting to this and use this as some structure for some notion of transformation. I think a lot of transformation is possible. Now, I write a lot about technology. I think that'll be a big piece of this. I mean, I don't, I, I, I got to imagine people are coming out of, let's say the coronavirus situation, really feeling that urge just to take this phone and chuck it, you know, down the sewer grate. I mean, has, has anything good come out of social media during the past two months for most people. I think it's been a, a almost purely negative source, whereas other types of technology, like being able to video call a family member has been really positive. I mean, so I, I think people are ready, hopefully. And I think working from home, another thing I've been working from, right? Like it, it, the dislocation of you, you have some of your normal, your normal, you're doing your normal work, but in a completely different circumstance, throws it in the sharp relief. And then you look at your normal work and say, oh man, I'm a human network router. I, I do, I, I send messages back and forth and talk to people on Zoom. Like, is this, is this work? You know, is it, so it, I think it's going to shake loose, I'm hoping, uh, radical re-engagements with technology in your life, which is something I write about, radical re-engagements with work, which is something I write about, and radical re-engagements with life itself, your understanding of yourself in the world and ethical systems, which is stuff I do not write expertly about because obviously some of the smartest people in history have. And so I'll more nod towards them <laughs> when it comes to that particular endeavor. But I do hope this is a moment for that, for people to stand back and say, I want to do a reset and I want some guidance in doing it. Well, that's a terrific note, I think, for us to end on the, uh, the way forward being the way back, the way outward being the way within. Cal, I really cannot thank you enough personally for the help you've given me towards recollection and towards a deeper life. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, it's it definitely my pleasure. You've been listening to the Ralston College podcast. Today's guest was the computer scientist and best-selling author, Cal Newport. His most recent two books, both of which I highly recommend, are Digital Minimalism and Deep Work. You can also follow, as I do, his excellent blog, Study Hacks, at calnewport.com. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you may do so with all the usual podcast apps, or if you'd like, you can support our work to renew, reform, and reimagine higher education at www.ralston.ac. Upcoming episodes include interviews with the mathematical physicist Stephen Wolfram, the Scottish sculptor Sandy Stoddart, and the Nobel laureate in economics Vernon Smith. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Till next time. <laughs>